Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That, uh, with the WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are now a full week removed from WrestleMania as WWE builds to the appropriately yet somewhat eye-rollingly named WrestleMania Backlash. The build is underway. SmackDown and Raw spent a lot of time uh, creating storylines and matches, or continuing in most cases, storylines and matches for that show while also debuting some new talent across both brands. So we do have plenty to talk about on today's edition of the show. As you can tell, the Silver King may be sounding a little bit back to normal. Uh, This is no uh, post-WrestleMania, midnight, 1 a.m. taping. This is not the Silver King on the road using a different microphone in a hotel room. The Silver King is back in the office, ready to go here with your WWE edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Unfortunately, Vintage Chris Vanini will not be joining us today because now that the Silver King is home, of course, he needs to be on the road traveling. But we do hope to link up for next Tuesday's show and get everything back to normal. But just because Chris is not here does not mean that this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is going to be any less or begin any differently because you know that I need to remind you, this show is so please, folks, stop making me ask. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for getting over Adam and Chris. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Also, leave a review. Let people know how much you love this show. Tell them why they should listen. Tell them why they should subscribe to what I hope you believe is the greatest wrestling podcast out there today. And of course, here at Getting Over, when you leave a five-star review, the Silver King reads it on the show, five slabs of tofu, three exclamation points from Mick Foley's Missing Teeth. Great podcast. I have been a fan of the Silver King since he was, I'm not going to read that. Uh, You won't find any dirty bedsheets on this podcast. This is a real five-star podcast. Thank you very much for that review. Please, everyone else do so on Apple Podcasts. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We release every new show on Twitter first. We tweet about it as soon as it's live. And now that we are back in the normal swing of things, we also will tweet live during all the major wrestling shows. Of course, we also offer polls, uh, videos, news, whatever we can do to make that Twitter account a must-follow. We do. So please go ahead and follow it at Getting Overcast. Cast. I'll also let you guys know one more note before we get into the show today, and we have plenty to talk about in the world of WWE, but I wanted to give a little bit of an update on how our WrestleMania week turned out. Uh, the answer, very, very positively. Three of our shows made it into the top 10 all-time here at Getting Over, our WrestleMania Ultimate Preview near the bottom of the top 10, the Night 1 Instant Analysis in the top 5, and the Night 2 Instant Analysis in the bottom half of the top 10. So three shows in one week to do that well. That is an all-time performance for getting over. And it is why we were the number 16 wrestling podcast in the United States that week on Apple Podcasts. So I cannot thank all of you enough for listening. Hopefully some of you listened for this first time and are now full-time subscribers. That is all great. 
So you know what? For those of you new listeners and those of you old listeners, let's get into it. Let's get into the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast as it normally is presented. Like I said, it has not happened in a long time. Before I get to the main event, the good, the bad, and the ugly, there was one overall topic I did want to discuss coming out of SmackDown and Raw, and that was the four official NXT call-ups across both of the shows. I just could not help but think about how uneventful they felt, even though they were all super accomplished and familiar to at least a portion of the WWE audience. The one thing AEW really does right, uh, more at least more often than not, is they tease debuts and then deliver on them. Could you imagine if WWE promoted TV by promising debuts of four of the most accomplished superstars in NXT history? Tune in Friday and Monday. Find out who is going to show up. Rumor mill starts running around. What are they going to do? What are their angles going to be? And then when you bring them in, you have them debut in something that is meaningful right off the jump. Or at least at a minimum, put together these video packages and for someone in particular like Guntha, put something together where you're like, this is a dominant dude, the longest reigning NXT UK champion, you know, and just scream about his bona fides maybe for a week or two before you debut him on TV, that no, the crowd, that way I should say, the crowd knows when this person walks out, holy shit, this is someone we need to pay attention to. It is such a simple alteration of their booking strategy that would pay off huge dividends in terms of excitement, maybe even in terms of ratings. Instead, at least the way I felt Friday, not as much Monday, because the person who showed up Monday had already been on TV. All of the debuts to me, felt flat, at least in some way. And to me, that was disappointing. Now, granted, you know, we're we're making the AEW comparison. AEW has the benefit of literally bringing in talent from the outside. And the one talent that WWE did bring in from the outside, Cody Rhodes, it knocked out of the the park in every possible way. Internal call-ups are not naturally going to be as exciting as third-party people coming in. But just having Tommaso Ciampa and Raquel Gonzalez appear in short backstage segments. To me, it's boring, it's wasteful when you should be able to get them immediately involved in something to get you excited about their arrival. And lastly, an overall view of SmackDown and Raw. SmackDown, to me, it felt rudderless. You know, you have the Roman Reigns storyline. It is taking up so much air on SmackDown that it's almost like there's not space for anything else. Raw, at least it had a 50-50 mix of excitement. There felt like there was some newness there. But there was also a lot of repetitiveness. Is all of that because of WrestleMania backlash? Or is that just because WWE is repetitive? It's really tough to know. Uh, It's okay, backlash, being rematches. One feud, two feuds, maybe three. Okay, let's draw the max at three. That's okay if you want to have three rematches on a show that is called backlash. But man, there was so much stuff that happened on TV this week that I know that I've seen before. And as a viewer coming out of WrestleMania... WWE should be putting its best possible foot forward, fresh matches, new storylines and angles. And it just doesn't feel like that. It feels like they kind of just got right back to business as it normally was. Now, that doesn't mean it's awful by any means, but could it be a lot better? I feel as if it could be a lot better. So with that, let us move into the first segment of the WWE edition of Getting Over. And as always, we begin by sliding into the main event. So we're going to do an extended two-part main event, one about the bloodline and everything else going on with them, 
And then the other about Cody Rhodes and the top stuff that's going on right now on Monday Night Raw. So on SmackDown, Roman Reigns entered in the main event with 10 minutes left. There was a light tribal chief chant from the crowd. I think that's the first time I've ever heard that. Reigns said Paul Heyman convinced him uh, being universal champion wasn't enough. So he smashed Cowboy Brock Lesnar, took the WWE title. Reigns said what stood out for him over the weekend was not his two titles, but the fact that the Usos only held one championship. Reigns said he wanted to be brought the Raw Tag Team Championships to unify them. The Usos were immediately all in and ready for the mission. To my utter shock, next thing that happens is Shinsuke Nakamura's music hits to a huge ovation. Reigns stopped him from talking, saying he understood injury loss because it happened to Jimmy Uso, referring, of course, to Rick Boogs. Reigns wanted to help Nakamura by giving him a bloodline love hug, and he literally hugged him in the middle of the ring. Then Shinsuke ate stereo super kicks from the Usos, and the segment basically ended. It was really cool to see Shinsuke step up to Reigns, but this was the second straight show where we had to wait until the final 10 minutes for Reigns to give us a completely lackluster promo and segment. You know, we were promised to hear about what's next for Reigns. Instead, we heard about what's next for the Usos. And the idea of the bloodline holding all the world and tag team titles, to me, it's hardly exciting given there's two brands in a three-hour program that could lose two titles in the span of a week or a month, depending whenever they hold this match. Everything about it feels like a waste of time feud regarding Reigns and Shinsuke. I will say this. If we get a banger Roman Nakamura match at Backlash, then it'll probably be worth it in the end. Don't forget, it seemed like We were going to get Reigns and Nakamura before the Royal Rumble when Shinsuke won that gauntlet, only for Adam Pearce to be forced into the match instead. I think we also saw them fight on tribute for the troops. So I'm down for this as a feud. I know it's only going to be one month. I know Roman Reigns is going to win. But Shinsuke Nakamura in a WWE Championship feud, that is a positive, even if it's uh, the undisputed WWE Universal Championship feud is what I should have said. Um, But again... For the last two shows on the Raw after WrestleMania and the SmackDown after WrestleMania, you're trying to do a coronation for the man who dispatched of Lesnar and is now an undisputed unified champion. It doesn't feel like a hot storyline at all. It feels like it's just completely dead at this point. And I I don't know what WWE is going to do to revive it. It feels like they might be going with Reigns and Cody Rhodes for SummerSlam and they just put the title right on Cody really quick. If they do that, that would probably be really hot and people would love it. But I don't know. This whole thing just feels like you already have one world champion and that person did not show up on Raw Monday night. You have two tag team champions, two mid-card champions, two women's champions. If you unify two of the four major championship uh, categories, then why aren't you unifying the other two? And if you do that, then what's happening to your brand split and your roster? It The whole thing to me is messy, and I really don't know where WWE is going with it. Is there a chance that it's a positive direction? Sure, of course there is. But for me, looking at the whole thing right now, I can only be pessimistic. And, and it's not because I have a mentality where everything WWE does is automatically negative. I just don't see how they're going to play it out in a way that's going to make sense and create exciting television across five hours on two shows that have two different brands, If especially if all of your champions are on SmackDown and they're not consistently crossing over to Raw. So let's move on to 
what happened in this storyline on Raw, which was a long uh, tag team thing that basically ended the show. So we had RK Bro versus Alpha Academy in a non-title match. Chad Gable got another extended promo and he mentioned Gable Stevenson again. I love that he's getting so much mic time here. Uh, Otis had shaved new sharp mutton t- chops into his face. Uh, this was another tag team rematch on Raw. But as I've said before, they're so damn good together that it's kind of tough to complain about them fighting so much. Riddle kicked out of an Otis splash. Orton then hit a draping DDT on Gable before escaping a sliding pinning attempt and nailing the RKO for a win. The fans popped huge all match and especially in the finish. It wasn't long enough to hit a second gear, but I did go 3.25 stars and a B. Uh, the Usos conveniently pulled into the arena as the match finished and entered the ring after commercial. Orton said the big dog led his bitches off the leash. Great line, obviously. The Usos made their tag team title unification challenge. Then the Street Profits entered, saying the Usos tried to use their privilege to cut in front of the line. So they demanded a Raw tag team title match first before the unification match happened. Orton said, screw all that. Why don't you all fight each other? And I guess they just decided that he was right. So they did. We had the Usos against the Profits in another non-title tag team match. Montez Ford hit a crazy Topi cannonball outside. Did I just say Topi? Tope cannonball outside, where he landed on his feet right in front of RK Bro. On a hot tag, Ford hit a silly good frog splash crossbody and a blockbuster for a near fall. Jay came back with a drop neck breaker, but the Profits came back with the assisted flying blockbuster for a 2.9. The Usos got some offense, but Angelo Dawkins escaped. Ford hit another insane frog splash for a broken fall at basically the last millisecond. Dawkins then got eliminated out of the ring and the Usos blind tagged for the 1D and the clean 1-2-3. The Usos and RK Bros stared down before separating. Dawkins failed attacking Riddle after the bell and Orton caught Ford with an RKO. The Usos then held all four titles in the air to end Raw. I had no idea why the faces, the Street Profits, attacked after the bell. Didn't make any sense. Nor did I have any idea why WWE thought it was a good idea to beat a top team in the profits, the top challengers, when the titles are presumably going to be unified in a matter of weeks. So if you're about to do that, you're going to need new challengers for the Usos week after week. The Street Profits are like your 1B to RK Bro being your 1A, and now they've already lost clean head-to-head in the main event of Raw. If they are going to go forward with the title unification, and it seems like they're going to. My only thought seeing all four dudes hold up the titles at the end of Raw was that this should main event backlash if it happens. If you're doing a tag team championship unification with two of your hottest tag teams in your company, I don't care that we're getting Ronda Rousey and Charlotte Flair again. I don't care that Shinsuke Nakamura might fight for the WWE Universal Championship, undisputed, uh, against Roman Reigns. I don't care that Cody and Seth Rollins are going to have a rematch. The main event of the show should be the title unification. And one reason why is because what we got Monday night was easily, without question, the WWE match of the week. I went four stars in A minus. Nothing else across SmackDown or Raw came anywhere close to this. That was a good one, yeah. So let's move to the second part of the main event. And if anyone hears a random chirp, here and there on this uh, recorded audio. I'm going to do my best to get rid of it, but there is a bird sitting right outside my window chirping every five to 10 seconds. So please, um, you know, ignore it if you can, or if it even comes through. And I'm not going to know that, of course, 
until this thing uh, is over, until the recording is over. Uh, but anyway, the second part of the main event is Cody Rhodes related. We had Miz TV with Cody Rhodes. This set up their match later on Raw. Cody's entrance got tweaked with smoke pouring down onto the stage and then a huge pyro blast when he made his entrance. He also got a literal ton of pyro on the stage and after he hit the ring. To say it was a massive improvement from last week is a huge understatement. But Lord, I don't think anyone in WWE that I can remember, at least these days, has that much pyro. It is almost, not almost, it is overdone. Hopefully they figure out a way to like keep the general idea of this, but reduce it by 25%. I don't know. (laughs) I just, I couldn't get over how much freaking pyro this guy had. Detroit was really hot when he got to the ring with loud Cody chants the entire segment. There were even louder Dusty chants at one point. Miz properly called out the pyro and he called Cody an egomaniac. Cody said Miz hasn't changed, calling him a reliable carny while saying he, as in Cody, has actively changed after six years away. Cody called it the undisputed WWE Universal Championship belt and Miz corrected him with title, a man of my own heart. Miz heard Seth Rollins wanted a rematch and he didn't like Cody's chances. He was pissed that Cody overshadowed his win at WrestleMania. Cody said he actually respected The Miz and thinks that he just feels threatened by Cody being back in WWE. Cody accepted a potential Rollins rematch and called the guys wrestlers. Miz corrected him with superstars. Then Cody avoided a sneak attack. We've seen a lot of Miz TVs, you know, over the years. And almost all of them, I would say 90%, feel run of the mill. This one felt different. It did feel impactful. It was expert promo work from both guys. And obviously, I love the back and forths about WWE terminology, some of those fun things that we always talk about. So we had Cody versus The Miz, and WWE made a really smart move, I thought, promoting the match for a 9 p.m. Eastern start time. Uh, They never really do that. They did do it a couple times, I think, with Bobby Lashley, maybe once with Big E. But for the most part, they just say, oh, you know, in the second hour or in the main event of the show. But for them to say this match is going to start at 9 p.m., it's going to be very curious uh, to see what the ramifications of that are. You know, is it something they're going to keep doing going forward? Did they do it in order to look at ratings and see, hey, did the ratings spike in that those first 15 minutes at the nine o'clock hour? Are that many people really in tune and caring about Cody? If so, that could lead to them pushing him a little bit harder than they maybe already were going to. So very interesting stuff. Uh, Bret Hart, if you remember, used to give away those 50 cent sunglasses when he came to the ring. Cody's giving kids like a 30 to $50 weight belt every single match. And that's certainly pretty cool. It's expensive as well. Uh, Cody also got the entire set of full pyro for his second entrance. It's just insane. Usually they only will do pyro for one of two entrances, but they gave it to him twice. That was crazy. Anyway, Rollins music hit immediately after the bell and he got serenaded by the crowd. Cody hit a disaster kick and a delayed front suplex. He landed poorly on a knee, so Miz locked in the figure four, and they did the old school sequence with the near submission, near pinfall, slaps, and then the figure four reversal. Cody hit the Cody cutter and crossroads to win in 12 minutes. This was actually one of Miz's best singles matches in a long time. Uh, Great ovation for Cody as well. I went 3.25 stars and a B. And this is exactly how you build someone. Let people wrestle, let them win, let them get serenaded by the crowd. Every single part of this that they did with Cody here completely worked. Rollins stalked Cody after the bell, and he said that Cody had every advantage at WrestleMania as a surprise opponent. 
Seth said now he knows what he's up against, and he challenged for Rollins versus Rhodes 2, which Cody immediately accepted. Presumably that's going to happen at WrestleMania Backlash. I must say this kind of feels unnecessary. Like perhaps there's a storyline component where all of this is going to make more sense coming out of Backlash, but it seems like a rematch for rematch's sake. And it also kind of feels like a spot where Rollins is going to get his win back and they're going to do the rubber match, maybe at Hell in a Cell in June. This is what we talked about them doing for AJ Styles and Edge. And it looks like they're probably going to do that as well. With Ronda Rousey getting a rematch that we're going to talk about in a moment with Charlotte Flair, if she wins, you have to presume Flair's going to want a rematch after that. So there's a very good chance that three of the four, or I should say three of the five main event matches at WrestleMania, we're not just going to have gotten at WrestleMania, but we're going to get again at WrestleMania Backlash and possibly again at Hell in a Cell. So that's obviously not a great development, but right now, as far as I'm concerned, Cody and Rollins, they can't do any wrong, and their match was so good at WrestleMania that I would certainly be looking forward to whatever they would give us at WrestleMania Backlash. And that's the main event this week. Uh, You know, really not that much happened. This is what I was saying before. I wish we could have a singular topic and go talk about it for 30 minutes, but really it was just kind of WWE moving along without a real strong singular storyline to push the company forward. We thought that would come with Roman Reigns, but his entire storyline, the payoff of it, waiting basically five hours to hear this guy speak and talk about what's next, is he wants his cousins to win the Raw Tag Team Championships. Talk about a letdown, you know? And and that's why SmackDown and Raw this week did not necessarily get great reviews. But let's move on to the second part of this show. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And real quick for any first-time listeners, the goal of this segment is to talk about everything else that happened in the world of WWE this week and grade it as either good, bad, or ugly. The problem, of course, having only those three categories, it sometimes can make grading things very difficult because a lot of stuff is right between one and the other. But nevertheless, the good, the bad, and the ugly, everything else from SmackDown and Raw, let's get into it. Ronda Rousey opened SmackDown in the ring with a monotone interview saying she tapped Charlotte Flair out but didn't do it when it counted, which is when the referee was looking. She said she wanted a rematch with no loopholes and I quit match at Backlash. Charlotte Flair laughed at her on screen saying winning, not quitting is in her DNA. Flair said the baddest woman on the planet is just a catchphrase and a myth because Rousey doesn't win when it matters. She denied the challenge, told Rousey to go to the back of the line and called her a bitch. Rousey said the match will happen and she'll make Flair scream. Pierce later in the show got a note from Rousey, Adam Pierce that is, who interrupted him while he was arguing with Jinder Mahal. Jinder wanted an intercontinental title match against Ricochet based on his resume. Rousey demanded her I quit match and Pierce said an answer would come on Saturday. Why would an answer come on Saturday? Why not do it live Friday on television? Who does he need to ask? What ropes or hoops does this guy need to jump through in order to make this happen? So again, why Saturday instead of Friday? Because WWE is weird and this was weird. Uh, Rousey has zero juice on the mic. She doesn't emote. She shows no personality. It's boring. Nothing about this made me want to see a rematch after the crap we got at WrestleMania. At least the producer of that match, Pat Buck, resigned the next day. Did this storyline make any sense? Sure, I guess. But it's not attractive or interesting. 
I just want this thing to end. This feud is cooler than cool. It's ice cold. Bad. Bianca Belair on Raw fought Queen Zelina in a non-title match. Sonya Deville told Adam Pearce backstage she already had a contract ready for Belair's first championship defense, forgetting, by the way, that she already has a match scheduled with Zelina, and even though it was not announced as a championship contenders match, theoretically, if Zelina beat her, wouldn't she become the number one contender? Nevertheless, I digress. Zelina cut a short tape promo about dropping Carmella as dead weight. She and Corey Graves, Carmella and Graves, are actually off on their honeymoon, so congrats to them, of course. Belair beat Zelina with the KOD in two minutes. This was a squash and one of a pair of two-minute women's wrestling matches on a three-hour Raw. It was ugly, given there was zero reason to not let these two wrestle for five or six minutes. I do not understand why WWE thinks it's harmful to put wrestling on a wrestling show sometimes. There's weeks where we get a 45-minute women's gauntlet match where Rhea Ripley comes out of it looking like a million dollars. And then there's another week where we get two two-minute matches. Four minutes of wrestling spread across two matches. It is absolutely mind-boggling how they book the women completely inconsistently on a week-to-week basis. After the match, DeVille came out. She praised Belair's win and listed a bunch of potential challengers, even mentioning Alexa Bliss, who, by the way, we have not seen since Elimination Chamber. She also got married this past week, so congrats to her as well. Belair said she would beat any challenger, so Sonya suggested she sign an open contract. Bianca agreed. DeVille built up the challenger as a generational performer uh, who vowed to return and win the title. And as she's having this conversation, I'm getting decently excited. I'm like, I wonder who it's going to be. You know, we would think it might possibly be Bailey or Asuka or maybe someone we're not even thinking about. Instead, DeVille blindsides Belair, chops at her knee, completely takes her down, signs the contract and holds up the title. Pierce came out. He was incensed at DeVille. She just walked off. He later told her it was an abuse of power, but she said she was going to make history by being an authority figure in a title match who was going to win the championship. Sonya said there's nothing he can do to stop her and to not be jealous because she's still in her prime. It's a great line talking about a guy in Adam Pierce, of course, who is a retired wrestler. Very good stuff from Sonya. This whole thing was exceptionally done by Sonya. I really hope this leads to the end of this double authority figure type deal and only Pierce remains in that role because Sonya, it was great to bring her back there, not give her the pressure of wrestling all the time. But Sonya once again proved through the promo, through her actions, she needs to be active in the women's division. More importantly, this easily created a fresh storyline and legitimate antagonism here. I loved all of it from start to finish. This was a good. One thing I will say, as I mentioned earlier, it really would have been a great spot to bring back Asuka or Bailey. I understand Bailey may not be ready yet. She is recovering from a torn ACL, might need another month or two, but I just do not understand why Asuka is not back on television or why Io Shirai or other NXT women have not debuted yet. It's just completely beyond me. They gotta get moving on some of these big names and they really need to reestablish the strength of the WWE women's division. Because once you bring back Bailey and Asuka and Lacey Evans, we're going to talk about in a moment, then some of these other women that, yeah, maybe they don't have much to do, they can form more permanent tag teams and the women's tag team division 
can be meaningful again. It all starts with bringing back your upper echelon talent. And I just don't understand why Asuka is not on my television. It does not make a shred of sense to me. Also on Raw, we had AJ Styles versus Damian Priest. Styles backstage said he was afraid of what he might do to Priest and Edge, given the way they talked about his family. Then he spotted Priest backstage and they brawled. Priest got a new Titantron with two different dark sides instead of a light side and a dark side. For me, the presentation of him just keeps getting better. Obviously, we didn't like it when they initially changed from Archer of Infamy to this. But ever since they've started going in this direction uh, with Edge, it's been on the upward swing, which is really positive. Styles basically dominated this match offensively. Kneeing Priest's head into the post, hitting a phenomenal forearm off the ring apron that knocked Priest over the barricade, connecting with a pendulum forearm outside, and delivering a flip inverted DDT after his forehead somehow got cut open. Priest finally hit the bell clap and a really cool Uranagi-style flatliner that I've never seen before. Priest taunted and kicked Styles, who countered the reckoning with a Pele kick. Priest countered the phenomenal forearm with a boot. Then, right as the match was picking up, right as it seems like we're going to the finish, he gets on one knee in the middle of the ring, raises his arms, the lights go out, and he gets bathed in a purple spotlight. His eyes start glowing, and Raw goes to commercial. And that was it. The match just ended without explanation. I was straight up dumbfounded. Styles backstage, he's like, I'm not done with Priest, and I have no idea what the hell just happened. Well, no shit, AJ, me neither. I don't think any of us know what the hell happened there. They took something that was rocking. Styles, Priest, great match they were having. The crowd popping for it. And they just stopped it ice cold. I just, I don't know what to say. Like maybe something comes of this and I look back on it and I change my grade. But despite 99% of this segment being good, the 1% was so bad that it absolutely has to be bad. When I first heard the idea of this group with Edge and Damian Priest and possibly two or three others whose names have been out there and I think we're gonna see get added in the coming weeks, I was really excited about its potential. You guys know I love factions and stables and Edge leading a faction like this sounds and seems super cool. But through two weeks so far, I can't help but feel this is dead in the water. The stupid negative reaction last week, that was not their fault. But then to follow that up with this unexplainable booking, you know, I'm gonna let them tell me the story here because that is deserved when it's a storyline involving Edge. But it's gotta happen quick, and by the time it all comes around, it better make a lot of sense. Because at this point, it's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. Sami Zayn on SmackDown complained to Pierce that he wanted an anything goes, uh, not everyone fights match with Johnny Knoxville. He demanded a match with the next person who walked through the door because he needed to get his respect back on SmackDown. Pierce agreed. And then of course, Drew McIntyre opened the locker room door. Zayn wanted the next person instead, but Pierce refused. So Sammy started strategizing. So we got McIntyre versus Zayn. Sammy ran away. Drew caught him with an overhead belly-to-belly suplex. I think he hit it twice. Zayn tried to take a count out, but McIntyre ran him down and Fireman's carried him back into the ring. Sammy dodged a Claymore and then ran through the crowd for the intentional count out. The fans booed as they should, given that the booking of this match created some excitement and they wanted to see two of their favorite wrestlers wrestle. And I was looking forward to see it too. But here's the thing. 
There's maybe only one person in this entire company for whom this finish would have been acceptable. And it just so happens that person is Sami Zayn. Ultimately, I did not find it offensive as I normally would with a forced count out in any other situation with any other challenger. But given it was Zayn, I will say bad instead of ugly, but you cannot call this good when, you know, they take two guys that you're excited to have a match, they don't give you a match, and then they do a purposeful count out. It's just almost a slap in the face to your viewers where you're just like, hey, you're looking for a good wrestling match? Go screw yourself. You're not getting one tonight. Uh, We had Sasha Banks against Liv Morgan on SmackDown. Asked what she was going to do on SmackDown as a Raw superstar. Liv said she wanted to beat Sasha, and the goal was to prove that she could do it to Rhea Ripley so that Ripley would believe in her. Morgan was still wearing the leather gear, just like Ripley from their tag team. They traded some pinning combinations and counters and pumped knees. Banks did a superplex. Then Morgan locked her legs up for a very surprising one, two, three in seven minutes. It was very cool. Good on Sasha for putting Liv over. And on SmackDown, I gave this a good. However, they followed this up on Raw. We had Liv Morgan against Naomi. So they did a singles match instead of that absurd women's tag team title match that should not have been granted. Uh, Jimmy Smith said it was because Ripley was in protocols. I presume COVID-19 and not concussion. Either way, I hope she's okay soon. And I guess the tag match is still happening. I think they booked it for next week. It was a little botched city early, but they figured it out. Naomi countered Oblivion with the ropes, then caught a hurricanrana into a powerbomb. They did reverse each other's pinning combinations until Naomi trapped Liv for the win in two minutes. This was maddening to me. Liv gets a big win over Sasha freaking Banks on SmackDown in seven minutes, only to turn around four days later and lose to Naomi on a longer television show in a match that was less than one third as long. This was just bad. There's really no other way to describe it. And it was also just plain stupid. Either build Liv up or don't. The win over Sasha is now completely meaningless when she loses to Naomi in two minutes. The the loss by Sasha looks even worse given Naomi beat Liv in two minutes. So they took something good and they actively made it bad. I don't care that Ripley couldn't show up. You put Liv over Naomi. Then you have Liv lose the tag team title match and Ripley turn on her, which is clearly what they want to do. But in doing so, Liv looks strong because she beat both of them individually and only lost the tag team match, which sets up naturally the feud with Ripley saying, yeah, I may have lost our tag team match, but I beat both of them individually. Let's see you do that. And now you have a storyline. Instead, they just booked it as poorly as they possibly could on Monday. I don't care that it was short notice. Liv should have won that match. On SmackDown, we had Xavier Woods against Butch. There was a weird hype-up spot in Gorilla. I just can't get over Pete Dunne's name being Butch or the way he acts like manically, like he's some uncaged demon or monkey or something that once you open the door, he's just going to go and tear your freaking face off. I, I get that maybe that's a decent character, but when you call that guy Butch and you have him wear a white tank top and one of those hats, the Peaky Blinders hats, it just doesn't really work for me. Uh, New Day came out mentioning how they've never won a match at WrestleMania, except Kofi Kingston's WWE title counted. Then they said records reset after Mania, which was kind of random because we know that's not true. Anyway, we had a match. Pat McAfee screwed up calling him Pete early, and I love that. Just call the guy Pete Dunn, please. Dunn was a maniac early in the match, but he did eventually like calm down 
and revert back into the wrestler that we know and love. That did ease my concerns. Uh, Strong back and forth action. Butch countered the step through Tornado DDT with a boot and a bunch of kicks for a near fall. Woods eventually countered an attack from Butch into Backwoods, which is a small package finisher for the win in nine minutes. After the bell, Butch threw a fit. He hit Sheamus and Ridge Holland before sitting on the top rope and pouting. It was a solid TV match. It did make Dunn look competitive. And seeing him like that against an established veteran was a solid development. I was far less concerned about Butch after this than I was going in, but I'm still iffy on the character. And I think long-term, he's only going to find success moving away from that name. But I will say this was good. Tommaso Ciampa was welcome to Raw. As Tommaso Ciampa, holy shit, they kept the guy's name, at least for now. Ezekiel came up to introduce himself and Kevin Owens immediately called him out again. Champa purposely bought into the gaslighting and Owens got pissed. KO later interrupted Pierce and DeVille to say he wanted to prove that Ezekiel was Elias. They swore he wasn't. Owens didn't believe them, so he demanded a library card. They said they didn't have one. So then he demanded WWE pay for a lie detector test that KO gets to administer next week on Raw. They agreed and KO was actually pleased. All parts of this were hysterical. We've seen stories like this before with Mr. America and stuff in WWE, but the execution from everyone involved, everyone that Owens has spoken to about Ezekiel playing right into it and Owens being out on this island as the only person who doesn't believe what, you know, the case that's being presented to him. It's so damn funny. And of course, as you can tell, I think this entire thing was good. I do wish they debuted Champa in a match. And what's really funny is of all the name changes that WWE's made, and we're going to talk about one coming up right now, the one guy where they could have changed his name and just called him Champa, it would have worked. Like, Tommaso is actually unnecessary. I'm not trying to do like a a monkey's paw thing where I say something and then, you know, there's an unattended consequence. WWE taking his first name or only calling him Tommaso, which would be even worse, of course. But if if there was anyone whose first name you were going to remove... It would be Tommaso, right? Like Alexander Rusev, Antonio Cesaro. Those are two guys who actually benefited from getting their name shortened. Tommaso Ciampa, I'm not saying he would benefit from it, but it would be one of those where you look back on it and go, well, we all call him Ciampa anyway. No one calls him Tommaso. So if they did take away the first name, it actually would have been okay, but they didn't, whatever. Tommaso Ciampa's on the main roster. I'm happy for him to get this opportunity. I know for a while he said he thought it would never happen. He didn't want it to happen. As long as they keep him as Ciampa, I think he's going to have success. And I just, I'm truly backing him and behind him. And I just hope that they don't do some weird shit with Tommaso Ciampa. That's the best thing I can say. Austin Theory backstage on Raw told Pearson DeVille, Mr. McMahon said he deserved the United States Championship shot. He also said they decided Austin wasn't a good name and he should only be called theory. So here I am glad that Tommaso Ciampa is staying around and they're pulling Austin from theory. Now I'm mixed on this because they kind of made it seem like it was literally because of Steve Austin and Vince hating that name. So if that's the case, that's actually genuinely kind of funny and good. And it is something That was referenced when they first started doing segments together, Theory and McMahon. But a better move would have been to change his first name to Adam or Alex or anything else with an A, because it makes no sense for WWE to shorten a name into something 
that is basically unsearchable and a direct reference to a thing other than a wrestler. So let's go back. Cesaro, Rusev, Sheamus, spelled the way Sheamus is spelled. All of those make sense. When you Google those things, they all immediately show up as the wrestlers themselves. But Riddle, Theory, and Veer, these are just general terms. It's so incredibly stupid. Plus, Austin Theory, or an altered version, is a damn good name. Steve Austin, John Cena, Randy Orton. It's right along that style. There's a reason why Triple H didn't actually change his name to Game. Imagine if Triple H, Game with a pedigree, Game off the top rope, Game, your new WWE champion. No, it was Triple H. It was a nickname, The Game, right? So calling this guy Theory, it's just another in the line of dumbfounding changes. I will give WWE credit for the reasoning behind it. I'm going to say bad here just because I don't like the name. So how can I go ahead and give it good? But it's also kind of 50-50. It's right in the middle there. It's not really something that even really needs to be graded. Ludwig Kaiser, formerly known as Marcel Barthel, debuted on SmackDown introducing Gunther, the ring general. There was very little reaction, but Michael Cole put him over in a major way. We got Gunther versus Joe Alonzo, a jobber. Gunther chopped his ass twice, hit a huge boot, and just destroyed Alonzo. Finally, a light Walter chant started, which I thought was very funny. Pat McAfee said it was a Gunther chant. Of course, it was not. Gunther hit a huge powerbomb for the win. I'd bet that Walter has never been in a crowd as large as this one and received a lighter reception. And that's not his fault. He's the type of guy who should be debuted with vignettes showing his dominance and telling his story. And even though I love the idea of him squashing jobbers, and that's something that should happen, I would have initially debuted him against a low-card guy that's recognizable, where he could beat them, a Drew Gulak, let's say, or even, I hate to say Apollo Crews, but he's back in that low-card zone based on what happened with Omas, um, or someone along those lines where he can beat them and you immediately say, holy crap, this guy is for real, right? Especially when they are telling the ring general name, when they're giving him the nickname that he's long had, what's behind that? Why is he the ring general? Why is this guy Ludwig out here introducing him? Who is he? Is he a tag team partner? Is Is he a manager? This whole thing for me just did not hit right. I mean, Walter is on the fucking main roster. It is wild that we have Walter on the main roster. This guy is amazing, but this was lackluster. So while I'm super excited about the call up, I'm going to give this a provisional good. I need to see much more. And as far as Marcel Barthel's name, it is a downgrade, but it is not noticeably poor by any means. I'm totally fine with it. Raquel Gonzalez, speaking of name changes, is now known as Raquel Rodriguez. She debuted backstage saying the SmackDown Women's Locker Room is impressive, but has never seen anything like her. Los Lotharios welcomed her and wanted to kiss. She straight up denied them. Now, why did they change this name? I really do not know. I presume there's a trademark issue with it. Um, It's a relatively minor change. So it's nothing that I hate. Rodriguez, Gonzalez, I'm not trying to say that they're interchangeable necessarily, but from an English speaker, they're very similar in terms of last names. What's so strange about this name change for Raquel Gonzalez, Raquel Rodriguez, is when she debuted in NXT, well, first of all, her real name is Victoria Gonzalez. And her father 
Rick Gonzalez was a wrestler, uh, also at, at times nicknamed Speedy Gonzalez. Very, very uncreative, by the way, name given Speedy Gonzalez actually existed as a cartoon, but I digress. Um, so when she was doing her NXT name, they told her, they're like, you can keep Gonzalez, but we have a problem with Victoria just because there's been so many Victorias in WWE. We'd like you to change it. So she goes ahead and picks Raquel. And that's totally fine. Raquel Gonzalez, great wrestling name. Totally fine. Now she gets called up to the main roster. And I, I presume that Raquel Gonzalez was a trademark issue. If it wasn't, they basically made her change Gonzalez to Rodriguez, getting rid of the family lineage, just like they have Braun Breaker out here not being Braun Steiner when it's obvious. Meanwhile, Dominic Mysterio is allowed to be Dominic Mysterio, I presume just because he's with Ray all the time. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, why would you do this? What was wrong with Raquel Gonzalez that she couldn't keep that name? It seems like a change for change's sake. But again, Raquel Rodriguez, Roman Reigns, like the alliteration, nothing wrong with it whatsoever. It's not going to affect her career. It just seems like something that was really unnecessary given her father and the fact that she wanted to honor her father. Nevertheless, the introduction of Raquel, it wasn't bad. It was good. There just wasn't much to it because all it was was a backstage segment. We had happy talk on SmackDown. Happy Corbin was depressed at losing to McIntyre, saying the loss was on Madcap Moss, who made the weekend all about himself by winning the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal. Fans actually chanted for Moss. Corbin said his place was to make jokes. Moss told two jokes. Corbin said they were terrible. He demanded a funny one, saying that Moss's job depended on it. So Moss made fun of Corbin, and they had an extended brawl with Moss winning and destroying the set. Don't get me wrong. This was not good in the traditional sense, right? And it got a very light reaction. But I don't know. Like, maybe it's the hope it instilled in me that the characters will change, or at least Moss's character will change, and these stupid gimmicks will finally end. I don't know, but I I wrote down good here. And maybe in the moment, I just liked it. I'm going to stick with it. Sue me. This was good. For an individual one-off segment, it was good. Uh, On Raw, we had the VIP lounge with Omos. Bobby Lashley came out before the segment even began. Lashley put over Omos's power, then said MVP stabbed him in the back and he deserved an explanation. Omos came out with MVP in the biggest blue suit I have ever seen before. I think he also may have gotten a remix theme. I haven't heard his theme that many times, but it sounded different. MVP said Lashley was floundering in WWE before he saved him. He even threw out like a little bit of an insult at Leo Rush. He said he saved Lashley, making him the almighty and the WWE champion. These are all facts, by the way, we should point out. MVP then said Lashley basically cast him aside. And all Lashley had to say was that MVP came back for a farewell tour and not really to help Lashley. The focus then turned to Omos with MVP saying Lashley wouldn't survive again. Lashley said he would chop down Omos again and then come for MVP. This definitely could have been worse. Uh, Lashley is still not a good promo, but he's made some improvements. For a mid-card feud, it's perfectly fine. I will say, though, that MVP is the babyface to me here. He's 1,000% right to be pissed off that he came in, saved this guy's career, helped him to become WWE champion, helped him retain the WWE championship, and then Lashley just casts him aside, doesn't bring him back to Raw, doesn't have him with him at WrestleMania, and just says, I don't need you. And yeah, Omas is sitting here, so why wouldn't MVP take his side? So yeah, I bought into the entire thing. I thought it was good for a mid-card feud, and I'm not exactly sure yet what's going to happen at WrestleMania Backlash, but I am curious. Michael Cole on SmackDown announced the return of Lacey Evans, saying she had to overcome adversity and wanted to tell her story. Lacey told what seemed to be a completely reality-based tale 
about her rough upbringing. She got choked up. She said she learned to adapt and overcome while wearing fatigues and showing shots of her mother, a police officer and a Marine, herself as a police officer and a Marine. She said she may not be better than anyone, but no one's better than her. I didn't really understand that. And apparently the story continues next week. So here's the thing. I liked that it was genuine and bringing Lacey back as a baby face is fine with me. But considering WWE's incredible production and its ability to create memorable vignettes, this was almost too raw and too plain that it felt out of place within the rest of the show. I'm going to give it a provisional good because it seems like she's been repackaged with something that might actually get over with the fans. Change the music, change her ring gear. As long as when she debuts and comes back, she looks, feels, and and she doesn't have to use a fake accent, but as long as she speaks in a more reality-based way, not sassy Southern Belle bullshit, then the provisional good will turn into a full good. Uh, Dominic Mysterio fought Veer Mahan on Raw. This was advertised, I think, as a Rey Mysterio match, uh, but this made so much more sense. I don't know if the change was for a COVID protocol, but either way, this was a better booking than it would have been with Rey. Uh, Ray also did not join him at ringside, which is what makes me think of that, by the way. Veer kept roaring like a lion during the match. Like every three three moves, he would just walk around the ring huffing and puffing and roaring. It was super, super weird. He caught a flying crossbody and swung Dom into the barricade outside. Veer threw a big lariat outside. They called the million dollar arm. They did it again and he did it again. And then won with a cervical style camel clutch in about two minutes. After that, Veer just kept coming. Uh, He put it back in twice after the bell. Dom was eventually stretched into an ambulance. And I think Veer got some real heat. Maybe it was piped in. It was really tough to tell. Veer later said he strikes fear into the heart of any man. Now, I'd like to have seen Dom put up more of a fight. Given, again, this is the guy who went toe-to-toe with some of WWE's best wrestlers during the pandemic. And now he's being made to look like a complete and utter jobber. At the same time, he is very low on the totem pole. So if the goal is to make Veer look dominant, this did work. I do need more than three moves, though, to actually believe in Veer. I wish, rather than making the million-dollar arm reference, they actually explained why it was called that, given many people do not realize it is the same person. This was 50-50 on the border of good and bad. I'm going to give it a provisional good, just because it did successfully build up Veer, and that has been the goal to this point. And lastly, Reggie and Akira Tozawa had a bachelor party with R-Truth and some extras. It was decently comical. They revealed that they thought they had to save Dana Brooke and the 24-7 title from her bachelorette party. But given all of them want the title, I'm not sure what sense it makes to save someone when you're gonna, you're, you are you want to win the title. That's the whole point. Dana and Tamina agreed to a truce until after the honeymoon. They were on a combined bachelorette party. Los Lothario showed up, which was very appropriate. Then Nikki Ash tried to steal the title. The guys did ultimately make the save with Truth saying nobody loves the title more than him. Truth said he was officially certified as a marriaging guy and demanded all attacks stop until he marries both couples in a double ceremony next week. You guys know I mostly hate this shit, but I don't know. Maybe this was somehow so bad it was good. Maybe I was just tired from my trip and I'm being generous. I found it entertaining. This is a sports entertainment show Much, if not the vast majority of the 24-7 stuff has been bad, but I'm actually going to say good here. I enjoyed it. You know, do the thing next week, and hopefully after next week, it ends, they take the title, they lose it at sea on their honeymoon, and we just all move on 
into something better in our lives because this should not be taking up four to five minutes on TV while the women in two combined matches get four minutes. Just should ne- These are things that should never happen on WWE TV, especially on a three-hour edition of Raw. But that is it this week. Speaking of editions, uh, the WWE edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is now closed. I appreciate all of you listening to this show, listening to all of our episodes during WrestleMania week. We will be back Thursday this week with our normal AEW and NXT episode. And there should be a lot to talk about because first of all, AEW apparently put on a fantastic rampage, which I badly need to see and I will see it uh, certainly before Dynamite. Uh, But there's also a ton of titles on the line, I think over this next week in AEW between Dynamite and Rampage. Plus NXT on Tuesday, there's a ton of titles on the line there two scheduled title matches, and then a tag team championship gauntlet after those titles were vacated due to Nash Carter being fired. So there's going to be a lot of title talk on this Thursday show, talking AEW and NXT, along with whatever the hell happened on Rampage that I still need to see. So I am excited for Thursday's show that is coming up soon. And of course, next week, same bat time, same bat channel. We will be back on Tuesday with another W. WE edition as the company continues to build to WrestleMania backlash. I thank you all for listening. A reminder of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So leave those five star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Apple. Also leave a five star review. We will read those on the show every single time a new one is left. And please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Over Cats. That is it. The Silver King is exhausted from his trip, so I am going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.